Go to Genesis 3, if you will. I'm going to read a couple of things, and then uh, I'm going to jump to Hebrews. So uh, y'all going to love this, and I say that in faith. Um, let, me, let me bring the whiteboard over. I don't have any notes today. So this is all coming from, uh, from me, but I didn't need them. So um, we're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about rest, specifically Sabbath, okay? And then we're going to talk about giving. And I'm not just going to talk about like tithing, you know, that type of giving. I'm going to just, uh, y'all just trust me, okay? Um, I'm going to talk about the tithe, but I'm going to talk about it in a different way. So y'all, y'all just trust me where we're going. Let me start in Genesis 3. I'm in the NRSV. If you got any other translation, it's close. Um, so so let, me, let me read this. I'm just going to, um, uh, where do I want to start? Where do I want to start? Let's just start at the beginning. Genesis 3, verse 1. Y'all good? Y'all got your Bibles? Okay. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. Any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. This is a snake. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. That's not what God said. That's an overreaction, but that's okay. But the serpent said to the woman, You won't die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made, their, made loin cloths excuse me, for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze and the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. They hid among the trees of the garden. There's so much here. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. Then God said to the serpent, because you have done this, listen, I want you to hear this language, okay? Because you've done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Um, Lord, help me not chase so many rabbits right here. Uh, but if I do, y'all just forgive me. And to the man, this is what I want to focus on. To the man, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of your field. Now listen, listen to this verse. We, you, we've never landed on this verse, but today I want to focus on it. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, 
you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and for his wife and clothed them. Amazing. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 23, last couple of verses. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and, excuse me, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. Super familiar, yet not familiar at all, okay? Super familiar. Number one, it, it might, do we want to say this? Yes, okay. Um, I'm about to say some stuff y'all have never heard, okay? So I'm going to need your trust. Number one, uh, many of us grew up believing that the serpent was uh, Satan, okay? Um, it, it would help us, and it may possibly, it might help us to understand that the personified evil villain of God, as we know him, um, didn't, didn't actually come to be until the time between the Old and the New Testament. So before that, there was there, the, the way that we think of the devil or, or Satan or the enemy. Before the time in between the Old and New Testament, influenced by, of course, Greece um, and Greek philosophy, before that, that idea didn't exist. It was, it was between the Old and the New Testament where that idea came to be, okay? I know you've never heard that before. That's just a little history for you. Y'all good? Yeah, okay, okay. Um, we based all of our theology on the devil, and anytime you start messing with the devil, suddenly start questioning our faith. Why? Because most of us got more faith in the devil than we got in God. But anyway, um, <laughs> that just felt good. So, what happens before Genesis 3? You have two stories of creation. Two stories of creation. Let me give you some history, okay? Y'all good? In, in the way that you um, understand the Old Testament, throughout history, the, the primary form that has stuck is called form criticism, okay? Um, or, or really, let's just use the word criticism. Criticism is not like you're criticizing somebody. Criticism is a way to understand things. The way the scholars have seen this is that there are three uh, primary sources that the Old Testament was written through. Three mindsets. One of them is a J source, one of them is a P source, and one of them is an E source, okay? Y'all don't need to know this. I'm just explaining this for you for a second. Uh, J is for Jehovah, or, or Yahweh, excuse me, it's for Yahweh, and the way in Hebrew it was used, it would have started with a J. So J is what they typically call Yahwist, okay, or Yahweh. This is when uh, God is talked about in, in a lot of human terms, okay? So God's, God having physical attributions or God thinking. So for example, um, when you get to the Genesis story about the floods, when God regretted, right, that is from a J source. It's, it's giving God this ability. And the reason that it's written like that is to tell us a story of God, okay? So it's written like that on purpose. Is that okay? You good? P is a priestly source, okay? The priestly source is primarily concerned with how to tell the story based on things like the law, based on things like how we work within the law and how we work with God. It's a priestly source. 
E is one of the more rarer ones, but it also happens here and there, and it's, a, it's, it's Elohim, okay? And that's another source that has a way of talking about God in the story. JPE. These are the two primary sources of the Old Testament, but this one is also present. J and P. So the first story of creation, Genesis 1, has been traced to a priestly source, which makes sense. If I'm repeating things Matt said on Tuesday, forgive me. Um, but the reason that it's a priestly source is because Genesis 1 is speaking in temple terms. I taught this two years ago. So if you want to go back, you can go back and listen to it. The story of Genesis 1 was not written to give us a scientific way of how creation came to be. That's just not. I know we grew up being taught that. We were taught wrong. That's not what, that's not what Genesis 1 is. Okay? It's not saying on day 1 God created light and then on day 4 he created the sun. Wait a minute. He created light on day one, but the sun on day four? But if you take away the sun, there's no light. So, you know what I'm saying? We never, we never sit down and think about this stuff because we were never told to. But the story of Genesis 1 is not teaching us what God created in 24-hour days. Let me give you another thing. If we, believe, we see Genesis you know, 1 as God creating 24-hour days. Why did God need 24-hour days? Why can't he do it in 24 minutes? Why couldn't he do it in 24 seconds? Why couldn't he do it in one day? Why couldn't he do it in three days? Three is a perfect number. It's the Trinity. You know what I'm saying? So, so, you see how, so that's not what that story is telling us. Genesis 1 is teaching us that through creation, it's a priestly writer, okay? Through creation, God is creating a cosmic temple from which he will dwell and reign with us. And the culmination... Of the days is day seven, which is when God, what? Sabbaths or rest. Okay? I don't know why I put a little thing there. It's when God rests. Genesis 2, starting in verse, uh, is it four? Yeah. Starting in verse four and then beyond gives another account of creation from a J source. Okay? So these are two accounts of creation. That doesn't mean anything because they're not telling us when or what or how it was created. It's, it's telling us a story of God. Y'all good? <laughs> okay. So when you get to Genesis 3, this is where the story picks up. In Genesis 2, the man and the woman are created in the garden. In Genesis 2, listen if you hear this, this language. The J source is God given uh, personal qualities, etc., Okay? In Genesis 2, God plants a garden, right? Um, he says it's not good for man to be alone. It's the first thing that God says is not good in the creation, man to be alone. So out of the ground, God forms man. All right, so you picture God taking his hands, getting into the dirt of creation, and raising up dust. You see this? It's very different than Genesis 1. God said, let there be light. God said, let ground, Right? Genesis 2 says God got in the dirt and started raising things up. So they're telling two different stories of the same story. Two different perspectives of the same story. Y'all good? Go back and read, I mean seriously, go back and read Genesis 1 and 2 just with what I just told you in mind. You'll see something you never saw before. Sabbath, at the end of day 7, Sabbath was the main point of Genesis 1. It was the point of Genesis 1. And by a priestly writer, 
The reason that Genesis 1 culminates in the Sabbath is probably primarily to give emphasis on the command to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember in Hebrew is not, I forgot about it, let me remember this. No, remember is to keep it on the forefront of your thinking. Okay? So when God remembered Noah, it's not because God forgot Noah, it's because God had always had Noah on his mind. Okay? So that's what it means to remember. Sabbath is a particular rest. I'm going to teach you in a second. But then holy, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, is not, you know, don't do laundry on Sunday. Don't cut the grass on Sunday or whatever. You know what I'm saying? No. Holy means to keep it set apart. So I said this in practice this morning. Sabbath is not inactivity. Okay? The rest that Scripture talks about, it might include you stopping your activity, but it is not inactivity. Y'all get? So the Sabbath rest is you recognizing that what you have is not because of what you have done. It's recognizing that what you have is because of what He has done. So the Sabbath rest is not when you become inactive. It's it's when you become active in trust. So for six days, you work your tail off. But on the seventh day, you stop and you remember that what you have is not because of what you just did in the six days. It's because of what Yahweh has done before you ever got a chance to work in the six days. So in the six days, you're working from what Yahweh has done You're not working to gain something that you don't have. So the Sabbath isn't just what ends your week, it's what begins your week. You start from the place of rest, and you end at the place. And so there's a cadence in your week. This is why they're commanded. This is why the story of Genesis 1 is there. The reason we have Genesis 1 is this purpose. There is a cadence that happens in our week. And this is where the 24 hours comes in. It's not to say what God created in 24 hours. It's to make us realize that there is a cadence in our 24-hour days that culminate in rest. So it absolutely is talking about 24 hours. It's just not talking about what God created in 24 hours. Y'all good? Okay. (laughs) I'm I'm blowing y'all. So if this is the case, then we need to see why Sabbath is the prescription for us losing our minds. God creates man, and then God Sabbaths. Do you think God ever stops being God? No. Yet God Sabbath. To say, Rabbi David Foreman has a book about this, he stopped to say it's good exactly as it is. God knew when to say, I'm done. But not just that, God knew when to say, I'm not going to try to perfect it anymore. It's good as it is. Let me say it like this. There was no anxiety within God that what was created was not good enough. And Sabbath was a testimony to that. God stopped Okay, if you're in anxiety, you don't stop because you think if you stop, it's all going to fall apart. Sabbath 
is when God stops and says, I'm going to trust, as an example for you, of course, I'm going to trust that what is created is good exactly as it is. And the fabric of what God has woven together is enough for it to not fall apart whether or not your hands are on it. Okay, so you get to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is the first, let's say it like this, it's the first theological debate in history. I'm going to prove it to you. You have a snake um, before the fall. There, there's a lot of Jewish writing that says certain animals were able to talk before the fall. Certain animals were able to do things during the fall, before the fall that they weren't able to do after. That's neither here nor there. What we have here is a, number one, a snake. Let me just write this. Who obviously was not like a snake that we know snakes are, right? This snake was walking. This snake was talking. This snake was intelligent, right? And remember, this is a story, but this, this snake was, was speaking. He was smart. He was witty. And so it says he was crafty among all the, all, all the other wild animals. He comes to the woman, and he says, let me correct a couple things. Number one, we think Adam was not present in this, and he absolutely was. The Scripture says he was. He was right there with her the whole time. Adam was observing everything that was taking place. It wasn't like Adam was off in the distance, uh, tending to the ground or doing whatever, and Eve's over here by herself. No, no, no. Adam's right there with her. Okay? So this isn't just Eve, you know, doing her thing. A lot of people have used this um, in context to try to make it sound like women are lesser than men, especially in ministry. And they'll go straight to Genesis 3 to prove it. And that is absolutely not what Genesis 3 is telling us. In fact, let me tell you this. Part of the fall... I'm trying to come up with a better word for that because I hate that. But anyway, part of the fall is this. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Okay? If the husband was ruling over the bride before the fall, why would that be a result of sin? Was that too, was that too deep? You know what I'm saying? Why does God point this out unless what was created good was man and woman together equal? But so much of the church has tried to use Genesis 3 to say men are here, women are here, and we operate like that. And that is absolutely not Scripture. We don't operate like that, so y'all don't give an amen for that, but you know, y'all know how it is, okay? But the serpent goes to the woman... And this is what he says. I want you to think of it in terms of a theological debate. And I want you to hear why when I read this. <clears throat> Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Of course not. You know what I mean? But do you, see, see when, you're, when you're in a debate, right? You're, we see this in political debates. Most of political debates are just lies that are reworked to make it sound like truth. You know what I'm saying? I promise we will do this. We all, we've seen this story and never happens. You know what I'm saying? I promise everybody's getting a million dollars. If I get elected, you all get a million dollars. No, we don't, you know? But did God say, you shall not eat from any tree? And the woman says, no, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, now remember, if you're a debate, you're trying to get an upper hand, okay? Did God say any? Nope, he didn't say any. He just said you shouldn't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden and you shouldn't touch it or you'll die. God never said not to touch it. You see, you see what I'm saying? Okay? Or you will die. For God, and then the woman says, I mean the serpent says, you're not going to die. 
which let me which is true they don't die for god knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be open and you'll be like god knowing good and evil here's my question did the, did the serpent lie then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. All right, so, right? Are y'all good? Brother, that's the devil. I thought the devil's the father of all lies. That person's telling the truth. Okay, anyway. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good and that it was a delight, she took it, ate it, gave it to the man. He ate it. The man was there watching. He's hearing this whole debate. He's like, you know what? That serpent's right. Man, they won't die. I'm going to die. What God knows we'll be, we'll be just like him. In fact, why doesn't God want us to be like him? And do you see how this starts to go? Why has God withheld that from us? Why doesn't he want us to eat of that tree? Maybe it is because we're going to be like him. Is he threatened? Is God threatened by the fact that we might be just like him? So she takes it, eats it, he eats it. And it says the first thing that happens is they realize they're naked. Which is so weird. You see what I'm saying? Is that not weird? Like, I mean, the first thing you realize, okay, they were naked and unashamed. We see that in the end of of chapter 2. But in chapter 3, they were naked and they realize it after they take a bite of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, okay? God comes to find them. They're hiding from God, and the reason they're hiding is because they're naked. God asks them if they, if they have eaten from it, and they start to blame each other, okay? The one, the, the, number one, the serpent is the only one that's cursed in the story, by the way. Well, Genesis 3 gave us a curse. Absolutely not. The serpent's the only one cursed, I mean, just go read it, right? <clears throat> because you have done this, cursed are you among all the animals. This is what he says to the woman. Your pain in childbirth will be increased. To the man, you will work by the sweat of your brow. The serpent is the only one that's cursed, not man and woman. So for us to believe that because man and woman took a bite of a tree that they weren't designed to bite of, it caused them to be cursed is absolutely wrong re- reading our theological beliefs into the Scripture. They are not cursed. Well, brother, they were kicked out of the garden. Because of love. If they take out and reach and eat of the tree of life, they're going to live forever in this state. And I've got Jesus on my mind. Are you okay? Okay, 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 okay. But here's what I want to focus on. The the woman was told that her pain in childbirth would increase. That's so random. Is it not? Okay. Knowledge, good, and evil. Remember, the whole crowning moment of creation is rest. It's Sabbath. What Yahweh is telling the woman is, I'm going to allow you to feel the labor of what it means to bring life into the world. Why is that important? You ready? Why is that important? When they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they become like God. Why do they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because they believe God has withheld something from them. They believe God has withheld a knowledge from them that they were actually designed to have, okay? And God says, if you really believe that you can have everything I have, 
I'm going to allow you to feel the pain or the labor of what it means to bring life into the world since you think you know how to bring life into the world. Okay? Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And immediately, the first thing that begins to shred apart is the equality between man and woman in the garden. Not just equality. They are one. The Lord brings them together. A man leaves his father and mother. The two become one. That's the end of Genesis 2. Now, they're fighting against each other. See how this has shifted? Before, they're working together, and now they're working against each other. You shall desire your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay? But this is what he tells the man. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you shall not eat of, cursed is the ground, not you. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it in all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam and Eve had effortless access to every amount of food they could ever want in the garden. And now the Lord is saying, if you think I withheld something from you, you can be God. You can do it. You'll eat from everything that you plant. Right? Because in the garden, they ate from everything God planted. Remember in Genesis 2, God planted a garden and put the man and woman there. Right? You won't die. If you eat of it, you won't die. God just knows you'll be like him. Well, bro, I think you're right. Why would God withhold this? We want to be like God. We should be like God. We're made in the image and likeness of God, right? And God says, if you think you got this, you can have it. You'll eat from the ground. Everything you plant, you'll eat. And it's going to produce thorns, and it's going to produce this. Now, remember, Genesis 1 through 11 is a big story telling the origins of God and us. Okay? But it is a story. That doesn't mean it doesn't have real things that happened in it. It means even if there are real things that happened in it, the writer is writing to tell us a story. It's not writing to give us a historical account. It's writing to give us a story of how we relate with God. Okay? There's a, there's a lot of scholarship that says that a lot of this main portion of Genesis 1 to 11 was possibly written in Babylonian slavery. Possibly. And if that's the case, that doesn't mean anything because all the traditions were passed down orally, okay? They didn't write English back 6,000 years ago, okay? Everything was passed down orally, so that's not an issue. But the writing in this, can you, can you picture when they are in a land where they're getting thorns and thistles? Now, remember the prophecy in Hosea. Lord, I'm getting so deep right now. Are y'all okay? I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. Uh, Lord, if I could find Hosea, <laughs> Hosea in my Bible right now. Um, let me read. I got a new Bible, so now all my markers are messed up. Here we go. Let me read this to you, and I want you to see if this sounds um, familiar, okay? Thorns and thistles. Okay, here we go. This is Hosea 2, Okay. Verse 3, I will strip her naked, expose her as in the days of her youth. 
and make her like a wilderness. I'll turn her into a parched land and kill her with thirst upon her children. I'll have no pity, etc., etc. Verse 6, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. She'll pursue her lovers, but they will overtake her. I will uncover her shame in the sight of her lovers. Um, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil, who lavished upon her all the things that she gave to Baal. And it goes through and describes how in the land I will allow thorns and thistles to rise up where there used to be everything that you needed to live. Why? Well, if this was written towards a time when Hosea was also written, what the writer of Genesis 3 is trying to say is the origins of the slavery that you're in is the mindset that you don't need God, which is very relevant for a group of Israelites and people in Judah who had turned to other false idols because they believed they had this all figured out and they didn't need God anymore. So, what would be the purpose of a story of what happens when you take the role of God in a culture that had completely turned away from God, thinking it was their work and their hands that produced everything that they had? Do you see this? So he writes this, but listen to what he says in verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. By the sweat of your face. Let me read you something that uh, Sandra Richter, Epic of Eden, wrote. And uh, she's quoting somebody else. But let me just read this. This is an amazing book. I don't agree with everything in here, but it's a great book. Um, let me just read this to you. She quotes this verse, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, etc. This last bit of the curse is particularly poignant. That's the part I would disagree with her on because there's no word curse in here except for the Satan. But anyway, most read the phrase by the sweat of your face as having to do with difficult labor physically. Do you feel that? Like, do you, when, you, when I read that, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. The first thing that comes to my mind, at least, is working so hard that you're sweating, right? Okay. She says, most people read this as having to do with physical labor. Difficult. But Daniel Fleming of New York University has demonstrated that this phrase is actually an old ancient Near East idiom having to do nothing with hard work. Having nothing to do with hard work. Rather, this idiom, listen to this, speaks of anxiety. It's perspiration-inducing fear. Where does anxiety fit into God's curse upon the people? What we find in Genesis 3 is that because of the rebellion of the earth and the expulsion of Adam and Eve from God's present presence, humanity will now live their lives in an adversarial world with a constant, listen to this, gnawing undercurrent of dread that there will not be enough, that their labor will not meet their needs. For example, this is what this would have been. What if our crops fail? What if our livestock dies? What if a firestorm or drought comes? And then she says, can you relate? What about groceries this week? Rent, mortgage, and car payments, college tuition, retirement. What if I get sick? What if my kids get sick? You and I are citizens of the richest nation in the world and have a secure position in our jobs, typically. 
But this is what this phrase is speaking to Adam and humanity toward. Limited resources, an insecure future, and a world that no longer responds to Adam's command. That's what that phrase means. It is an ancient idiom that speaks to the anxiety of not having enough. The sweat of your face in this idiom, which is something that stands for something else, the sweat of your face is what happens. And I don't know if you've ever had this happen. It happened to me when I had COVID the first time and I was locked in a room for 10 days. I've never had an anxiety attack in my life. And I had one when I was locked in a room for 10 days having COVID, the worst, okay? But what happened was my heart started beating. And you know what I was anxious over? Just be vulnerable. My retirement. Dumb. But like, you know what I'm saying? I was anxious over not having enough in my retirement account. Most of that was because I drained it to pay for the church. I'm just being real. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's, I've, I've put more back into it now. But like, you know what I'm saying? And so back in 20, whatever year that was that I had COVID, I'm laying in the bed by myself. And you know what begins to happen? My heart starts beating and I start pouring sweat because of anxiety, because of fear of not having enough. And the reason I feared not having enough is because I believed it was by the work of my hand that my future was secured, not by the word of the Lord. And all of this begins to trace back to a moment in the story, where you and I take a bite of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil every day of our lives. Every day, we believe God has withheld from me, therefore I'm going to take matters into my own hand. That's what Western culture is built on. Western culture is built on keeping God at a distance just in case he doesn't come through. I'm going to keep one hand on the steering wheel and I'm going to keep one hand on God just in case the God part falls. At least I got another hand on the steering wheel. This is Our culture's built on this. You know what I'm saying? The reason why, listen, the reason why nobody tithes, the real reason nobody tithes is because they don't believe they'll have enough money if they tithe. That's the real reason. It's not because they don't love the Lord. I mean, you know, maybe you can make that argument. But like, you know what I'm saying? No, it's because we don't trust. Because we don't Sabbath. So let me play a little story in your mind, in my mind, and I'll give it to your mind. In the ancient Near East, they didn't have Publix, they didn't have Food Lion, they didn't have Walmart. Sometimes I wish we didn't have Walmart, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> right? They didn't have Lowe's Foods, for y'all, y'all fancy people. Um, all their food wasn't made in a lab. Most of our food is made in a lab, right? Um, and they had to plant everything that they were going to eat. That's just, that's just how things were, okay? I taught on the uh, patriarchal society a few weeks ago. So I want you to picture this. You go out, you have a land. You have a piece of land, plot of land. You go out and you plant all these crops. You plant corn, you plant okra, whatever else you're planting, all right? You plant all these crops. But you're not just planting crops for fun. You don't just have like a backyard garden just for fun to see what happens or whatever. No, like, if these crops do not grow, you die. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, if these crops do not grow, you die. So the amount of trust that you have to put on God 
is immense and something you and I have never understood because we've never had this problem. The amount of trust is insane that you have to trust that God's going to provide just the right amount of rain, not too much, not too little. The right amount of rain, he's going to provide. The right amount of sun, he's going to provide the right amount of protection around your land so that wild animals don't come in and eat your crops. You, I mean, you've got to have an immense trust. Now, take that a step further. Let's say all the crops grow, and you've got food to eat for a while. And then God says, now, just to remind you that it was I who gave you that and not the work of your hands, I want you to take the best and the first 10% of that crop, and I want you to bring it to the storehouse. And that's what the priests live off of, absolutely. But the purpose of it was ultimately Sabbath. The purpose of it was for you to say, now imagine, you've got a land full of crops, okay? And you're thinking, that portion, that portion, that portion, that portion, that portion is what we're going to live off of for the next year or whatever. And then you go to that land, and it's not just 1%, and it's not just 3 10% of what you have done and what has grown, the first 10%, by the way. So when this crop grows up and the other crops are still questionable, you pull them out of the ground and you take them to the house of the Lord. Why? Because it is an act of saying, I trust that God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches in glory. Literally. God will give me the crops I need. Therefore, I'm going to take the first and the best of what I have and give it to him because it wasn't by my hand that made this. It was his. And that's where the tithe comes in. It wasn't just I'm going to throw a few bucks in the bucket. No, it was I'm going to rip crops out of the ground that my family need to survive off of and take them to the Lord. I'm going to take, we've got goats. I'm going to take these animals, these bulls, and I'm going to take the first and the best of those that we would eat off of, and I'm going to take it to the Lord. And I'm going to trust that by taking it to the Lord, I'll have enough to survive with the rest. Uh, that's where the tithe comes from. So when we sit around and say, well, brother, the church has always asked for my money. No, no, no. No, no, no. The, the tithe is an opportunity for you to take the very tangible. We don't make crops. We buy crops. We don't make it. You know what I'm saying? So the most tangible thing we have to a livelihood is money. The most tangible thing. And so the reason we're called to bring 10% or I believe beyond that in the New Testament, but either way, to the Lord is because what we're saying is I trust that I will be provided for, not because of my job, but because of Yahweh. But where does, where does rest come into that? The Sabbath was a day of trust. The Sabbath was a day where you remind yourself that you're not in control, but God is. Ironically, you ready for this? Ironically, in our culture, there's two things that we stink at. In American church culture, what are they? Giving and rest, but keeping the Sabbath day holy. <laughs> the two things we stink at. 
And we wonder why the Lord, the God, where's revival? Revival will come when the church starts giving and the church starts showing up. Revival will come. It's easy, so easy. We don't need a prayer meeting. We just need people to do what they're called. You know what I'm saying? Okay. This, this is massive. Giving and rest and Sabbath are, are so connected because rest is a sign that you trust God. Giving is a sign that you trust God, right? And if you trust God, you'll believe that if I rest, I'm going to be provided for. And if I give the best and first of what I have, I'm going to be provided for. I mean, okay, this is huge. Let me go to Hebrews. Let me go to Hebrews chapter 4. And this is what Hebrews 4 has to say about this. Hebrews chapter 4, and then I'm going to read one more quote. And I'm almost done. I'm almost done. <clears throat> verse 1. Therefore, nope, let me back up a little bit. 16 in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 16. Let me back up. Now, who were they who heard yet were rebellious? Was it not all who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses? But with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not those who were disobedient? Why were they disobedient? We see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief, or we might even say because of their lack of trust. Okay? So, with that in mind, verse four, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest is still open, let us take care that none of you shall, should seem to have failed to reach it. For indeed, the good news came to us just as it did them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That is huge. For who, or excuse me, for we who have believed enter the rest just as God has said. As in my anger I swore they shall not enter my rest, though his works were finished at the foundation of the world. For in one place it speaks about the seventh day as follows. Here we go. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place it says they shall not enter my rest. Talking about the Israelites. Therefore, since it remains open for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. And what is disobedience? Lack of trust. Again, he sets a certain day today, saying through David much later in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice and do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak about a later uh, excuse me, would not speak later about another day. So then the Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. For those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors as God did from His. There, the Greek wording here is unbelievable, and I'm not going to get too deep into it because I'll be here all day. But for those, first off, it uses multiple words for rest in the Greek. I'll, maybe I'll teach this one, one night on Tuesday. But, but when it talks about verse 10, those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors as God did his. Again, the, the Greek is not talking about they cease from doing anything. They cease from their labor. Okay? And why do they cease from their labor? If you go back to 319, it's because of their trust. If you don't trust, you labor by the works of your hands. If you do trust, you have the ability to rest and know that it's because of the work of his hands that you are provided for. Okay. 
Indeed, last part, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And before him, no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. How many of you have heard that before? The word of the Lord is sharper than any double-edged sword, pierces the divine soul of spirit, joint and marrow, judges thoughts and intentions of his heart. Right. At no point have we ever, at least I, have ever been taught that that is included in the passage that talks about rest. First, well, no, 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 no. How, I'm about, see, I call myself about chasing another rabbit. I just stop myself right there one day. The, the passage, what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, one, is, you, is pulling on the language of Genesis 1, right? Therefore, we're laid uh, naked and bare before the Lord, etc. He even quotes the verse in Genesis that says God rested on the seventh day from all of his works, right? So it's pulling on the story, the narrative that is in Genesis 1, which teaches on Sabbath. If anybody ever asks you, what is Genesis 1? All you have to say is Genesis 1 is a reason why we should Sabbath. That's why we're given that story. That's it. That's exactly why we're given to it. Is God put all this cosmic temple into motion so that by rest it operates. The kingdom of God operates through rest, not by works. It operates through trust, not by being in control. So why am I teaching this today? The reason I'm teaching this today is because we have been called, as I taught a couple weeks ago, to rebuild Zion that has been destroyed. Amazing. The first thing that we've got to do in order to rebuild Zion is trust that you and I are not in control of this thing. Thank God. You know what I'm saying? You and I are not in control. We, we, like, we like to be told that you are what you do. You are what you do. In other words, if you want to be big in life, you work hard. Have you heard this? If you want to, if you want to be, and I'm, you should work hard. I'm not saying I'm against that. But if you want to be anything in this life, you work hard and you fight and you blah, 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 and you do all this stuff. And we live in a Western culture, an American culture that is a, a consumer Push, pedal to the metal, work, 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 event, 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 sport, 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 sport. And we do all of this stuff because we believe if we do enough, then we'll reach some place of satisfaction. If we do enough, our future will be so secure that we'll never have to worry about anything ever again. If we save this amount of money, I'll never have to worry about not having enough money anymore because this can get me through. If I can have this marriage, if I can have this relationship, if I can have this amount of kids, if I can have this house, if I can have this job, if I can have this ministry position, if I can have this income, and all, if I can have this retirement account, right? If I can live in this area, if I could just get out of Columbia, if I, and we have all these things that we believe if we do and we do and we do and we do and we do, that we'll reach a place of satisfaction and then we'll rest. And that's not how... The way the kingdom works is you rest and then do what David says, which is prophesying to Jesus and ultimately us who are the body of Jesus, which is sit right here while I make your enemies a stool for your feet. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. 
we've made evangelism about how fast we can go and how hard we can go. And the Bible teaches evangelism is this. Rest, and I'll give you everything that you would have worked hard for as an inheritance. You know what I'm saying? So, we, so I, there was a, uh, there's a meme account. I, waste, I, I used to waste hours on this. I don't anymore, but, you know, try not to. It's called Theos U Memes. I think that's what it's called, right? Me and Matt share these all the time. They're hilarious, and they just make fun of everybody in the church. It's so funny. Um, but they, they're in the church, so like, you know, it's making fun of themselves sometimes. Anyway, they shared a, a picture, and man, I wish I had this. I wish I had this. Um, and it was a joke, and it was hilarious, but it was also so true. And uh, there's this, you know how you can buy, like, gag gifts from different stores and stuff? And uh, anyway, it was a gag gift, and it was a... Um, uh, absent father figurine, but then like in the place of the figurine, there was like nothing there, you know, and uh, and so and it was a kid like looking at it like crying, and the caption said, um, uh, pa- uh, "Nobody," and then pastors' kids, and then that was the thing, right? Yeah, and um, super brutal, a thousand percent true. And, um, and so, anyway, I, I was like, man, this is hilarious, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, I looked at the comments. And you wouldn't believe how many people under that said, speaking from experience, this is true. I, I mean, I, you, countless. And, and, so I, and so what our American culture, let me say it like this. What our church congregants have told pastors is this. You either choose us or you choose our families, your family. If you choose your family, we're going to another church. Welcome to the American church culture. Ask anybody, why, did, why, did, why, are, you going, why are you church hopping? Well, my church doesn't have enough groups for me. My church doesn't have enough events for me. My pastor isn't present. My pastor doesn't meet with me enough. My pa- here's, here's what all of them are saying. My pastor has chosen his family too much, and so I'm going to go find a church where my pastor chooses me over his family and not give a crap about their kids. Welcome to the American church. Here we are. So we've got gigantic buildings filled. Well, it used to be filled to the brim, not anymore because all the scandals. But filled to the brim, filled to the brim, right? They're full. And their families are at home wondering where dad is. And I'm here to tell you right now, God will allow thorns and thistles to begin to grow up in every single one of those gardens until they realize it is not about how hard you work. It's about how much you trust. And the reason our church hasn't exploded like beyond belief is because I've chosen I'm going to be a dad first rather than a pastor first, and whatever I have left over comes to you guys. But my daughter and my wife get what's first. And because of that, we're slow growing. And if that's what it takes, that's amazing. But let me tell you what I'm never going to do. I'm never going to lay down who I am in order to explode a church. That's not a church. If it grows like that, it's not a church. I'm more passionate about this today. People get so mad. Why do you talk all the time about these other churches? Why don't you just focus on what you're doing? No, no, no. Because nobody else has the guts to, to say some of this stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, I, it does not matter if the entire country of South Africa 
repeats a prayer, if that evangelist who led that movement goes home to a family that don't know who they are. I believe that if we could get fathers to be fathers, it would do more for our cultures than evangelists being evangelists. You know, huh? Okay. And so what we as a people that are reigning in and a new old move of God is we've got to learn to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy and, and to give and not give because our church needs to be rich. Give because it, it is a heart testimony. It's not about what the church has. Our church is blessed. We, our church is good. You know what I'm saying? I'm not, nobody's begging for money. We don't have to beg for money. That's not, it, it, but it is, a, it is a heart posture that says, I am who I am because of what God has done for me. I am not who I am because of what I've done for myself. And we'll hoard everything that we have because of the mindset that it's all about what I, I can do for myself. You know what I'm saying? And the Lord is moving us into this. Let me read this from you. This is from Ellen Davis. I think I shared this with you guys. Um, this is such a practical book. She's a professor at Harvard Divinity School. But I just want to read this real quick. I'll end with this. Isaiah, can you hop up here? Now, she, this is a practical book, so she goes into some like really, really extremely practical stuff. But y'all just hear the truth underneath it. So she starts by quoting Hosea 2, and it says this. <clears throat> and she, this is Hosea 2 talking about Israel. She did not know that it was I, I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, she said, they are a present to me, which my lovers, foreign gods, gave me. And she went after her lovers, but she forgot me, says Yahweh. That's what it says in Hosea. Now listen to what she says. Hosea's metaphor of harlotry makes the point that Israel is looking for agricultural presents from her sugar daddy gods without taking on the demands of covenant relationship. Listen to this. And stretching our capacity for cultural criticism over nearly three millennia, we can see that while, while the form of bad faith has changed, its substance is remarkably stable. For the Baal cult, the food and the farming industry have all of this in common. They are seeking thrills without regard for the consequences. And I'm going to... No kids in here, right? Okay. No. I'm going to just keep reading this. Inducing fertility by ritual sex or massive doses of chemical fertilizer and modified genes, these practices express ancient and modern failures to understand that we eat only in the context of covenant community. That is, in the context of long-term and inalienable responsibility both to God and to the soil that God has given us to work and to watch. The prophetic message for us is that we either, excuse me, we eat either in good faith or in bad faith. Good faith springs up from the earth. For those of us who are not farmers, perhaps the first step to good faith eating is learning something about where our food comes from and what is the real cost 
to soil and water sources of growing or raising it. This is where it gets real practical, but just pay attention to this. What will our great-grandchildren have to pay for our cheap food? This is real practical with our, our society. Okay, but she's speaking to something deeper. What will our great-grandchildren have to pay for because of our cheap food? A second step is caring enough to make changes in our habits of buying and eating. Again, real practical, but just hang with me. For example, buying food from the community-supported agricultural networks that have sprung up around many urban areas, or buying local, often endangered varieties of apples and tomatoes at the farmer's market instead of commercial hybrids that are bred to be shipped 3,000 miles and survive shelf life measured in months. Another step might be planting a garden that grows food as well as flowers so that we might have direct experience of our covenant partner, the fertile soil. Sure, these steps may only be symbolic. They will not work great changes in the food industry, although consumer aversion to genetically modified food has already created a global furor where the food industries once experienced acquiescence. But, People of biblical faith have always valued symbolic. In the church, we often call it sacramental action as a powerful help to perceiving the deepest realities. Almost done, last couple of uh, sentences. However, gradually bringing our lives into line with them. For many of us in this generation, good faith eating may be the best way to practice a steady awareness that our lives are at once graced and precarious with which it is to say we depend on the generosity of God for every meal. And the whole point of that chapter, and the portion that I read kind of brings it all into, into a culmination. The whole point of that chapter is to say exactly what I said earlier, which is you and I know nothing about what it means to trust God for the very substance of life because we never have to do that. We don't understand Sabbath because we don't have to trust God for anything. And what she's saying, she gets real practical because what she's saying is, she said, maybe you need to grow a garden in the backyard just to see what it looks like for you to trust God to grow something for you to consume. And she says, it could just be symbolic. Maybe that is just symbolic and it'll never make a major difference. But you and I in the church do things symbolically all the time. We take communion. Are we physically eating Jesus and physically drinking his blood? No, but we believe it's symbolic for what we are actually doing. And Sabbath and tithing are symbolic yet extremely active measures for you and I to make sure we never leave a place of trust. To make sure when the serpent comes in to say, God knows that if you don't tithe, you'll still be blessed. He just don't want you to have all that money. You know what I'm saying? God knows. Listen, it's a beautiful day. So-and-so invited you to the lake. I mean, wouldn't want to disappoint him, right? I know, it's, I know it's Sunday. I know it's Sunday. I know you hadn't been in three months. I know that. I know that. I know that. But you can go next week. Church is always, you can watch the live stream. You can watch the live stream. Man, it sure is hot today. <laughs> See? You know what I'm saying? Y'all get real quiet because that's our welcome to America. 
Coming to America, part three. You know what I'm saying? That, that's, this is it. Welcome. Here we are. It's like we treat the Sabbath day like it's something we can discard at any single thing that comes up in our life. We just throw it away. There goes the Sabbath. Who cares? I'll catch you next week. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Why is that a command? The reason the priestly writer gives us Genesis 1 is to say the Sabbath is not something that you can just toss in the garbage. The Sabbath, the rest, the place where you come with the family and grow deeper in the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters come to sea, that place is very specifically designed for you to make sure that it is not by the sweat of your brow that you earn everything in your life, but by the hand of God. In other words, you can't miss that. If you're going to miss something, miss the event. And I'm I'm not talking about perfect attendance. But I'm talking about honor. I'm talking about a mindset that says, I'm going to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The basic stuff that we don't ever talk about. Basic. I, I, feel, I feel y'all getting a little quiet, so I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up. But, but I, see, we, we can go as deep as we want to go. Today is real surface. Today is real surface level. We can go as deep as we want to go, but man, if we don't grab on to that stuff in the beginning, you're going to get so deep and realize that you didn't put your swimmies on. You're going to wonder why you're drowning. It's because you didn't get on the, get the swimmies on in the first place when you didn't know how to swim yet. You know? I'm telling you, this is, this is big stuff. If the church would just simply get back to remember the Sabbath day and keep it... If the church would get back to that, it would cure almost 100% of what ails the church. It would. I'm, I'm so convinced of that. So I, wanna, I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. I want to pray of you real quick. Today has been very different. I know that. Um, but it's been good. If you uh, would be honest, and you, as you close your eyes, if you'd be honest, and you would say that, that man, this is, this is something I really, I need the Lord to work on me on. My hand's up, by the way. I, like, this is something I've been wrestling with this whole week. This is something I need the Lord to work with me on. I don't know how to Sabbath. I don't know how to rest. I don't know how to trust the way that I'm designed to trust. Is there anybody else in the room? Is it just me? Yeah, yeah. Awesome, yeah. Let me, let me pray. Let me pray over all of you guys, and, uh, and we'll be done. Lord, I pray right now in this moment, that you would, would you would give us a new heart, that you would give us a new perspective that says, I trust you. From the very beginning of this church, the, the phrase that you have continually asked, the question you've continually asked is, do you trust me? And today we're given an opportunity to trust in the hand of the Lord above our own. I pray that we will learn how to rest. I pray that we'll not just learn how to rest, that we'll begin to arrange our lives around Sabbath. That we'll begin to arrange our lives around how it looks for us to rest and trust the hand of God. How many things, Lord, how many things have I had to say no to in order to say yes to just rest? And it is extremely difficult in our culture to retrain ourselves to do that. But we've got to have a rhythm where we trust in the hand of God. So I pray that if there's anybody that is stressing out over things like tithing, if there's anybody stressing out over what it would look like to take one day off of work per week, 
to Sabbath, I pray that you would give us, however that looks, you would give us the mind that says, if I will trust and obey, he will provide all of my needs according to his riches and glory. Lord, this, is a, this church is a testimony to this so much. Lord, I love you. We honor you in this place in your name. Amen.